economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. On our show today, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics, as well as Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Peter Jacobson, the Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. So today we're talking about a TED Talk that I stumbled into at some point, and there's some stuff I liked and some stuff that made me my stomach churn a little bit. Um, and so, but I thought the topic was kind of fun. And uh, I'm going to throw it to Peter here to give a little little summary of it. Sure. So uh, what I gathered from the topic is that the, the speaker for the TED Talk, which wanted to get across this idea of happiness not always being uh, well measured by things like GDP. And so he's kind of putting for this alternative idea of, you know, focusing on happiness. And what he points out uh, throughout the talk um, is that when you do the studies and you you run these measures, what you tend to find is that people appear to be more happy when they are doing well relative to those around them or when they do well relative to their expectations is sort of the final uh, piece of the talk. Uh, Whereas even if you're doing, you know, uh, you you get a a bunch of money, but everybody else gets more money and you expect it to get the same amount as everyone else, you're going to be unhappy or more more unhappy than you were before because you got less than everyone else. And so it was sort of this idea of uh, happiness is relative to those around you and then relative to your expectations. Uh, not so much about something like uh, your yearly income or something like that on its face. Yeah. Well, my, my first, uh, my first economics professor, Dr. Drew Matson at Noka Ramsey community college up in Minnesota set the stage perfectly for me for the rest of my life with expectations and eating at Perkins Perkins restaurants. I don't know if they're everywhere, if everybody, if they're that ubiquitous, but uh, the kind of the, breakfast and lunch and dinner place. He said, you know, Perkins has terrible food. And so I, uh, I always have really low expectations. I eat at Perkins probably once a week or so with very low expectations. And I'm never disappointed when I eat there. And then every once in a while, I get a really great meal and I'm just so happy. And so that was his take on expectations theory that uh, spoke to me during this episode a bit. So... So Justin, uh, what was your take on some of, some of this video? Maybe before I give my take on the video, I think we should talk about a couple of the examples that he used. Yeah, that's a good idea. Um, so he started off by saying that he noticed when he was um, in, uh, in Africa that his cab driver who had uh, their leg blown off or something, uh, only one okay. leg, seemed to be very, very happy, um, even though, you know, it was a cab mm. driver in Africa with only one leg, right? And right. then when he said that piqued his interest, and then he does these, uh, he refers to these ex- psychology experiments, which seem to show that, you know, if, if you're a medalist, um, that third place medalist is mm. yeah, happier than a uh, second place medalist, because, you know, when you're second place, you're this close to being first place, right? But when you're a third place medalist, you, you're this close to not even being on the dais, right? Yeah. Um, so you're just happy to, to be a medalist. Um, and it was something else in addition to the leg being blown off was other uh, examples of traumatic events 
that happen and you're actually you're rebounding back to your happiness after a six month period right was it, i can't remember if it was cancer or what the other example was but something yeah. fairly dramatic and so you know and he asks the audience you know would you rather play second or third um, right it, assuming that you care only about your happiness right which is an enormous assumption um and he says you know if, if you care only about your own your own happiness what would you uh, would you rather take a big payout of a lump sum of cash or this, um, you know, uh, payment over time or, you know, assuming you only care about your own happiness, um, would you rather do, um, you know, you and your colleagues both get a raise, but theirs is higher or, you know, neither yeah. of you get a, you know, and, and the, yeah, the would you like 40, what, what was it like $40,000 a year and you get 50 or everybody gets 40 or whatever. So well, basically your relative income was according to his uh, data, more important for happiness than absolute income. Yeah. And he also and had the, he also had the example of the increasing income as well, that, that people apparently are happier when they receive a smaller total amount of money, but it increases over time rather than a larger total right up front, yeah. uh, which is interesting because it's sort of the opposite of what you would expect from an economic perspective. Yes. Um, and the thing that struck me is that, it seems like throughout his whole talk, he's trying to have it both ways with regard to hedonism. Mm -hmm. So um, in all these examples, you know, he's saying, assuming you only care about happiness, but he's trying to uh, couch these as saying, and you'd actually be better off if you only got, uh, if you got in third place or whatever. Right. right. And um, hedonism listeners was our last episode. Um, I naively thought it was just pleasure-seeking happiness, but Justin enlightened us that uh, it's, it's a little deeper than that. So listen to that last episode on hedonism, which was a fun talk uh, to get more on that. But that's basically a focus in short on happiness only as, as an absolute, essentially. Is that fair to say, Dr. Clark? Yeah. And what I mean when I say he wants to have it both ways is that for his thought experiments, he seems to be assuming that hedonism is true, right? Uh -huh. um, but... In his initial discussion of the cab driver, it seems like he obviously thinks hedonism is false because he's not saying, I would really like to trade spots with this cab driver who has their leg blown off but is somehow happier than me, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I had a big problem with that aspect of the talk. Um, I also, and I'll probably agree with Russ and, you know, and, and Peter on this too, I don't think his policy prescriptions follow from the truth <laughs> of uh, even if he did get the um, social science right. Uh, but the, I had a, a huge problem with the talk generally. And that yeah, is that-, that you, You're bringing up stuff I didn't think about, of course, uh, definitely from the philosophical standpoint, to kind of go, have, trying to have both, ride both sides of the fence. Yeah, and the, the thing that I really could not stand about the talk, and this is from <laughs> the moment it started, is that he was better looking than me and had an Australian <laughs> accent. Oh. Yeah, he seemed to have it all. He he just genuinely seemed happier than all of us, right? So he he had that smile and the monkeys up there with the, the stuffed animals and yeah, a good-looking man with an Australian accent is uh, you know <laughs> yeah pretty tough to beat. I'm in, I'm in a similar skeptical boat to Justin actually, uh, though for I think uh, I think actually uh, maybe a tangential similar reason, but not exactly the same. My big issue, and I think he brought up a really good point, which is that, you know, sometimes we focus on GDP 
uh, as a measure of well-being, and GDP is problematic for a lot of reasons. And you'll never hear me argue with that. Uh, there's a reason that. Uh, well, I might argue with you, I, but okay, you the, continue on first. There, there's a reason that uh, money is not a perfect proxy for you know well-being or something like that. But what I would argue is that it's pretty good. Okay. Um, and Sounds so, like we're talking back to the same language. That, yeah, okay. yeah. And, and the problem with, the, and he mentioned the gross domestic happiness stuff, but the problem with happiness, I actually disagree with his, almost like the central point of his topic that we're really uh, bad at knowing what makes us happy. I disagree totally. I think we're just really bad at measuring what makes us happy. Uh, I think surveys uh, given to ask people to judge their happiness are, I, I'm just a, a little skeptical of that. Uh, and so like my thought experiment was, you know, imagine you've got a, a more happy self-reported third world country and then a first world country. And you ask someone from that third world country if they want to move to the first world country. Even if that person's happiness goes down, if they accept the move, my guess is that they're not going to move back their self-reported happiness. And so uh, my contention, I think, is that I'm more interested in what people do rather than what they say, uh, you know, revealed preference when people put their, their money where their mouth is. Uh, I'm not so interested in the survey aspect of things. And so I, I think that there's something to be said for, for happiness and people becoming unhappy when they have less income relative to others. I don't think it's totally without merit, uh, but very skeptical, I think, of the, the happiness survey research. Well, also yes. in your in your example of somebody moving that won't move back, um, even though maybe they take it a hit to their happiness, we could also just say that's because uh, even though their happiness goes down a little, their well-being actually goes up. Right. And what we want is well-being, not necessarily happiness. And happiness yeah, is an ingredient to well-being, but it's not the only thing. And I think that's where we tangentially touch is, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I'm right up there, but close to once again saying that happiness might be the 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 number one ingredient into well-being, number one being just greater than 50% of all the other factors coming in, but that's neither here nor there. So in my macroeconomics class, I go over GDP, the dollar value of all final goods and services produced within the nation's boundaries over the course of a year. And uh, we, we talk about how, you know, money's not everything. Uh, but as my old uncle Sam used to say, uh, Russ, you know, money's not everything, but it's right up there in the top three, isn't it? <laughs> and I think that's where, uh, you know, economists come in is that money can be used to achieve some of those other factors. So if you have money and you have a sick relative in a in another state, you can you can fly there every weekend if you had to, right? Whereas somebody who's in uh, doesn't have as much money won't be able to do that. So it, it truly can be a, a a big factor in it. And so Justin Wolvers comes to mind from I think Michigan that has done some studies that say, well, they say money can't buy you happiness, but I'm here to tell you that's not true. And so a number of studies have shown uh, the positive correlation between various metrics of subjective well-being, which is kind of the survey happiness stuff, uh, is positively correlated with, with GDP. And uh, he even, I think, debunks that, well, when you're really, really rich, then uh, you know money doesn't do anything for you, the incremental dollar. And I think he tries to debunk that even to say, no, really, really rich people are actually really, really happy. <laughs> and so some interesting studies with, with that. Um, so it, it, at the end of the day, I think all the research tends to boil down to that. It, it is a decent proxy for that. But as our uh, resident philosopher here has pointed out, I think we all agree that it's, it's not the all end all. And what we don't want to do is turn our focus then to being a GDP maximizer. Uh, GDP is a, is a result of pursuing maybe higher level things. And so we don't want to get confused with the, with the cause and effect, I think is, is the important thing. 
All right, Nate, uh, what you said you had a question or something to comment on the Yeah, I just uh what I got out of the video is I the expectation gap in in my generation I think is yeah. just huge problem that leads to unhappiness with people around my age and that's just from the social media aspect i think at my age everyone's always on their phone and everyone has instagram twitter facebook and just seeing the unrealistic pictures and unrealistic visions that people are doing it skews people's minds and and it gets them to that gap where they think like I'm going to get this happiness out of this, but there's such a big gap between what actually Yeah, happened. that's the part of his talk that I, I really liked. I'm going to see if Justin, if Justin doesn't like that one too, but somehow. But uh, I, I thought the, his little talk about, well, little Johnny, you can do anything you want. You could be yeah. the best basketball player in the world and you can be on the NBA and whatever. All this positive lofty you're really just setting expectations up here or i think another thing that's hurt the economy is you got to go to college you got to go to college you got to go to college and you have all these expectations on students that have to go to college and then they go their first semester or first year and they basically can't do it it wasn't for them maybe the timing was wrong maybe they'll do fine as a 28 year old but as an 18 year old they're not you know they're not ready for college at that point in time and so um i i thought that part of the talk really spoke to me yeah me as well. Uh, regarding the social media thing, um, I think it's actually even slightly more devious than this expectation thing because, you know, since the 50s, we have always been awash in um, pictures of, uh, you know, celebrities and people li- living glamorous lives. But sure. one of the things that's changed with, um, with social media is that uh, you have to put out a picture of your life for the world. And what you do then is you put this idealized picture of your life out there. And it's not a mismatch of expectations between your life and the celebrity's life. It's a mismatch of, uh, it's a mismatch between the picture you are putting out of your own life and the felt experience of the life that you're actually living. Yeah. Good point. Good point. You almost compare the two against each other, your life versus their life. And it makes you kind of unhappy, I guess. Socially. Yeah, and it makes you complicit in lying to the world about right. the way your life is going. And lying to yourself then in a way too, or there's just something something bad going on there. So, well, this looks like a good spot to take our break. When we come back, we're going to jump into the policy thing, which, which I think we all agreed on was pretty... Uh, bad. And so if uh, his idea was, if, if this is the way the world looks, then, you know, what sort of institutional or policy changes. And so we'll tackle that in the second half and uh, just talk to you in a bit, little bit. By 2030, the Gorney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economic understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience. Society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audience will look to the institution for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at GourtneyInstitute.org. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. 
Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gourney Institute for updates on our activities and research. Okay, so continuing on our discussion here, um, I had another expectations example I have to give because shortly after I heard Dr. Drew Matson's example on Perkins, I developed my own as I was looking for a prospective uh, mate in college. And so I decided that I either want to marry a really, really smart girl or a really, really dumb girl. And the reason is, is that when we have discussions, then if I ask a question, I would know that I would expect a dumb answer or a really smart answer. And I wouldn't have this in between that it seemed to cause a lot of commotion in relationships. So those of you who know my wife, I chose the smart end, by the way, my wife, Dana, but, uh, but that was uh, one of my uh, tools that I use. That's called applying economic reasoning, right? That, that's called applying this stuff to real life. So, and Peter, what did you, you had another comment to make on expectations before we get into the, to the policy prescription? Yeah, and it could be due to time constraints. But one thing that I kind of noticed is that his uh, talk really lacked sort of a, a theory of expectations or a, a way of going about how expectations are formed. Because to a certain extent, he, he makes it seem like people are the victims of their expectations, that we put kids up to these bad expectations, and then for their whole lives, they're unhappy because of that. And I think there's something true to that, that you can uh, influence someone's expectations. But uh, economics has this idea of rational expectations, which has strong and weak forms. But the, the simple way of thinking about it is that people learn to shape their expectations over time when they make mistakes. And so I think that one thing that uh, needs to be considered in this sort of research is that I, I think when people have expectations that are too high, we should expect, you know, a, a rational individual to uh, change their expectations going forward. It's not as if we can, by telling our children the wrong things at an early age, we, they, we spend their uh, whole life fooling them into thinking that they're going to be more than they will. No, I, I think we should expect them to learn over time. And so taking into account learning changes expectations. Uh, and the one other thing I'll say on expectations is that um, if it's something that we can control, uh, it's a little odd that all of us haven't figured out how to um, just set minimal expectations so we're always really happy, you know, kind of like the Perkins example. Yeah. And maybe the reason that is, is actually it's, it's not uh, very fun to have low expectations all the time. Maybe there's something good about having high expectations uh, that come true rather than just low expectations that you're surprised by all the time. Yeah, that's yet another... McCullough thing is I, I would tend to shoot for the moon. And then if I miss it, I at least end up here rather than shooting for mediocrity and then either missing it or hitting it. You end up being at a higher place by having the higher expectations. I think that's a great comment on, on the complexity of, of humans and individuals and relationships that uh, our rational expectations theory says we gather all information before we make a decision. And so there's a lot of things that go into that. And so even if our parents have built us up, we shouldn't dismiss the fact that there's a lot of other information coming from other sources that might bring you back down to reality. Like, oh yeah, mom and dad think I'm going to be an NBA athlete, but I know better being five foot five and can't hit the backside of a barn with a, with a basketball or whatever. So you, you kind of learn as you go a little bit more that way. Okay, good. So um, let's get into this policy stuff. I was going to have Justin um, uh, highlight some of the things that he brought up in the video for policy prescriptions, because this is where I think things got real de derailed. Real quick, just relating to what Peter said, I think this is um, also a great point to emphasize that, you know, parents need to let their kids fail because you learn from those yeah. failures um, yeah. and you, you can't protect your kids from never failing or else, um, you know, then they don't get to 
um, set their expectations rationally. Yes. Um, yeah. Good point. So uh, on to policy proposals. So given that the person doing the TED talk, his name is escaping me right now, given that he says that our happiness is based on our expectations and based on our environment that is relative to, you know, our peers. And he says that we can craft some policy proposals that will uh, tend to maximize happiness. And one thing he says is that we might consider banning digital enhancements in things like advertising because they then present an unrealistic standard, uh, one that is hard to live up to, um, you know, and indeed actually even impossible um, because you are, you know, it's not like you're digi digitally altering normal people for these advertisements. You're digitally altering supermodels for these advertisements, <laughs> right. right? And so he says that would go, that would help us set more realistic expectations. Um, he also suggests that we- You know, let, let's, let's pick that one apart first. I'm curious who, ha who objects to- getting rid of digital enhancements. There, there is a part of me that appreciates something like that uh, to have a more real life, but, but I like seeing some, some fake stuff too, imaginary stuff. And so, I don't know, uh, who wants to pick that one, pick, pick on that one? Peter, you look like you're nodding your head. Yeah, just from kind of the line we were just talking about with expectations is I actually don't think, uh, you know, it, it might when, you know, people are young and they're first introduced to social media, there might be some expectation gap. But I, I think we all understand. And if you say to anybody, they'll nod their head along that, you know, the photos and magazines are digitally altered. And so I think knowing that, I, I actually don't think that there's a huge issue out there with people comparing themselves to these magazines, uh, maybe on some level, uh, but I think people adjust properly knowing that these things are altered. Uh, and so you kind of see that manifest in the culture now where actually companies are starting to do less digital altering because people are starting to demand uh, that you j just show us the real thing because we know it's fake anyways. Yeah. Uh, Target just popped in my mind. Uh, the models that they show, even in you know big in the store, are usually heavier set. Or I mean, they have a mix of thin people and heavier people. Where, gosh, back twenty years ago, it was just the supermodels that have been enhanced and all of that stuff. Uh, Justin, why don't you uh, continue on with the next policy thing? All right. So uh, his next policy proposal was um, that since our our happiness is based on expectations and our, and our, uh, how we are doing relative to our peers that parents should try as much as possible to not give their kids unrealistic expectations. And the example I, you know, he gave is, you know, you can do anything, something like that. I guess encouraging parents not to tell their kids that. Yeah. I was curious what you guys' thoughts were that as, as parents, because I'm, I'm not a parent. I know you guys all have your own kids. And so I think, well, my parents growing up, they always gave us, they were like, you can be a professional soccer player to me. And I think giving, and they told my brother, my brother wanted to be a pharmacist and a doctor when he was young. So they gave him the high expectations and he just graduated with a pharmacy degree. And I've gotten this far in soccer. And I think these high expectations, if you, if the parents set them, I think it helps almost push you towards that goal. Like, like Russ was saying, it sets a high expectation. If you still miss, you're still kind of high up there. But I think the high expectations help. And I, I was just curious, that was one of my questions, is what you guys do with your own kids. Like, have, have you set high expectations for them? Or have you, what, did, what have you done? I'll, I'll speak first on that, because I did not intentionally. Um, 
I guess it was from maybe a variety of things, but uh, my wife was more of, uh, you're going to go to college a little bit more on kind of, I would almost call the normal track, but I never really did. But what's funny is my son, I noticed sometimes had the impression that I did. So I don't know if I subliminally did it or just from what I do myself, he and his mindset, like, oh, dad's got, let's say, I don't know, higher education or whatever. Uh, but man, I, and I really believe this in my heart. Like if, if to be a garbage man or there, there's no, nothing disgraceful with getting a, you know, other jobs that uh, don't require an advanced degree or whatever, um, certainly I would want him to, uh, if I would have saw him slacking off and not really living up to his true potential. But um, at the same time, I wanted him to do what he wanted to do. And so I, I also never really pushed sports on him. Uh, he just, whatever he wanted to do, we supported. So um, that's kind of was my approach. Um, these guys have younger kids. So they, they, this is a work in progress for uh, uh, Justin and uh, <clears throat> Peter. That's right. So my two-year-old says she wants to be a builder right now. I'm sure that'll <laughs> change uh, because I don't know many who have taken on their two-year-old dream. Uh, <laughs> but what, what I think that I, the approach I'll take and sort of the approach I've taken now is that um, I think it's true for the most part, you know, unless you're like, you know, looking at the NBA or something like that, you're like, you know, very, very short. I mean, that that's maybe one barrier, but I think it's true. Like, you know, your kids could be something like president. You don't exactly know, but they have that potential. So I think the suggestion is not necessarily like you can do whatever you want. It's okay. You want to be a builder. What's the first thing you have to do? Well, maybe go stack those blocks. I, I think that giving them like tangible goals that you sort of approach that because, you know, it's not like one day you wake up and you become president. It's you practice and you, you work at things and you become someone who can give speeches and you meet people. And so there's tangible things you can do throughout your life to reach your dreams. And I think parents' job is, you know, if you really want to be, you know, a soccer player, well, let's go out and, you know, kick the ball around for a couple hours every day because that's what it's going to take if you want to be a major league player. I agree with that. And I also think that, and this is, you know, my, my kids are too young to have real expectations for them so far. But um, I remember when I was growing up, you know, my brother and I were both, uh, you know, high school athletes and pretty good ones. My brother was better than I was. Um, and, you know, my brother went to college on a football scholarship. Um, but my parents were always very clear, like, you know, and you know, my dad played sports too, but my parents were always like, it would be great if you could get college paid for by your sport, but, uh, you know, you're probably not going to make a living out of it. So, you know, work as hard as you want with this, but make sure you have a backup plan. And so I think it's very important for parents. Like philosophy, son. Yeah. (laughs) 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 To make sure that kids aren't putting all, you know, all their eggs in one really unrealistic basket too, you know, which I think a lot of, especially parents of high school athletes do, um, well, and I guess the last comment I'd like to make on, on that policy prescription is what about freedom of expression and the individual? I see a dangerous slippery slope if we start to say, okay, no digital enhancements. And then what's the next thing down the road that gets restricted, you know, to try to equalize. And I think um, having the idea of, you know, do no harm um, to others as our general premise, but otherwise you can pretty much do what you want. Uh, if you want to do some digital enhancements or change, uh, the freedom of expression part um, seems to be a, a, a real constraint that I'm, I, I'm not surprised, but I'm, it's kind of surprising to hear like people would actually have that on the table as a policy prescription. So um, I'm always a little leery of that. 
just wait till you hear how they define harm in order to get uh, your, as long as you're right. not doing any harm. Definition. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that that's a fair you, comment. So. Like I'm creating harm by doing the digital enhancements or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, all right. Um, so did you go over the uh, distribution of income? All right. Hit that one for us, Justin. What did he say? What was his comment? So his there? final uh, comment was that since our happiness is based on our uh, comparison of ourselves with, you know, our peer group and, um, those people around us that what we ought to do is as much as possible to try to make uh, to equalize income and that way none of us would be uh, you know at a disadvantage relative to those around us yeah so peter what do you think on that one well i it, it's again one of first off i'm suspicious of the premise that people's happiness really comes from like this relative comparison game rather than what like is absolutely happening to them mm-hmm. and so i i have always said to my classes that what matters is not the distribution of the pie necessarily but the size of the pie and so so you know we could make a pie very equal that's a very small pie and you know we all get one bite of pie and none of us are happy or we could actually grow the pie and everyone has larger slices and you might say well, then someone might get more, but they have less relative to everyone else. And I would argue, even, you know, if there's a survey that says otherwise, I think what's more likely is that if people had to choose between the bigger piece that's less equal and the smaller piece that's more equal, uh, especially when someone's hungry, they're going to go for that bigger piece, no matter what they report in a, in a survey or something like that. And so I'm always in favor of growing the pie, uh, given there's a trade-off between those two things, assuming that. Yeah, and I, I think when you're on the the way the questions frame bothers me too, that um, we did this uh, study on uh, the problems in Chile, which surprised me. So there was kind of this up, uprising of the poor and kind of a rich being too rich and needing redistribution in Chile going on. And so I went and looked at the data and found that the surround, uh, Chile is one of the highest ranks highest for economic freedom in South America. And that there's a lot of positive things I've heard about Chile. So I I was kind of surprised by all this. And sure enough, I go back and look at the other countries that are neighboring them that have lower amounts of economic freedom. And they are substantially poor. The poorest 10% are substantially poorer than the poorest 10% uh, in the other countries. And so I tend to not care about the gap uh, as much as the bottom. So let's keep our focus on the bottom. If the bottom's going up, the gap might be growing. Maybe the gap is growing. Um, I'm not as worried about the gap as I am about the bottom. And so that's kind of where I tend to put, put my focus. So let me also just say that his argument does not work, even if he's right, right? Because <laughs> the argument de- uh, explicitly depends on happiness being the only thing we want to maximize, right? It depends right. on hedonism being true. And like Peter's example of the pie example, or, you know, you take a bigger slice of pie. Yeah, because that would make you more well off. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you recognize that it might make you a little bit more unhappy. So his policy prescriptions only follow from his, uh, from the results of his social science, if hedonism is true. And we have uh, a bunch of reasons mm-hmm. to think that, we are, we want more out of life than mere subjective happiness. Yeah. And, and, and it kind of goes back uh, to the, there's lots of poor, happy people around that we've, we've seen and whether you lost your leg, like, like the example he went over. We can also just take a look at places where they have attempted to do this and we can say, well, 
do these people look well off? We can look at East Germany. Uh, yeah. Do they even look happy? Did it even result in the happiness uh, increase? Right. And um, I think the answer to, the, to both of those are no. Someone could press me on the second one, but I think... Why did they have to build a wall to keep these happy people inside their country? <laughs> they had to contain the happiness for us <laughs> They somehow. had to keep it all for themselves. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean... It, it, it is um, those lessons from history. I think that's, that's well put that, that we've just got devastation around uh, where we don't uh, have systems in place to allow people freedom and freedom to exchange and, and freedoms in other, in other ways. I would say the, the art of economics always is to look at the unintended consequences of some sort of specific policy or something like that. And granted the policy that he laid out is pretty vague. And so it's hard to draw any, uh, very specific uh, unintended consequences that could result. But I w- what I will say is that when people make less from what they do, they're going to do it less. And so the, the other problem is that what this risks to do is get rid of the pie entirely, right? There's no given pie. You know, the natural yeah. state of the world is poverty. And so we, we have a very complex market system uh, that when you interfere with it, think with things like, you know, equalizing income across people, uh, you might actually do away with the thing that created the pie in the first place. And so you have to be very careful with proposals like that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no doubt that the, uh, the rich are always going to be able to maintain a lot of their richness. Um, they have enough resources to put them in another country, to move stuff, to shelter stuff, to hide stuff. Um, uh, so that, that philosophy is never a good one. I, and I, I do believe in a progressive income tax where the proportionately, higher income people pay more than lower income people. So I, I'm, I know I've met other economists that aren't in favor. They want some sort of flat tax or otherwise. So I, I don't mind that, but that can only be pushed so far. We can't go back to the, to the 1970s where we have a 70% uh, tax rate on the incremental dollar. Uh, that just will destroy uh, economic activity at the margin for people who fall into those higher income brackets. And we don't have to look very far to see all the value and well-being that a guy like Jeff Bezos uh, helped bring to life and Gates and Jobs and all the way down that uh, having uh, no upper bound on income, we can't have a 100% tax rate. And if you push some people who are in that high tax rate, ask them next time, what rate do you think it should be? Most of them, I've learned when I press them on this question, don't know that the high, the high marginal tax rate is 39% already. Uh, they, they have no clue that it's that high. And um, so then when, well, and then the, for their first thing would be, well, it'd be something reasonable. And I'm like, well, it can't be 100%, right? And so that would be taking every dollar. Well, no, of course not. And like, should it be 90? Well, no, that's too high. And actually push people to kind of think through that, um, not it doesn't have to be in a confrontational way. It can kind of be in a fun way, but usually they just are uninformed about that. It's just too easy for politicians to take the tagline of we're going to tax the rich and give it to the poor. The the redistribution scheme is always kind of left in limbo. And I don't think people have a a full appreciation of the redistribution scheme that we already have. um, And that there might be other areas of policy that uh, could be more beneficial uh, for the United States. So. All right. Well, that looks like a pretty good place to wrap. Any final comments uh, from anyone here? So can I say one more thing? Yeah, of course. The other thing that kind of bothers me about talks like this, where they then give policy proposals and they say, look, you know, this would make everybody better off. It's like, yeah, everybody thinks their political, their (laughs) preferred political policies would make people better off. That's why they hold those beliefs, you know? Um, So 
uh, the idea that this would convince anybody who didn't already agree with it rather yeah. than convince rather than help somebody who does already agree with those policy procedures uh, policy proposals you know pat themselves on the back is something that yeah. um, that I object to a little bit yeah and and so his his analysis fell way short and granted he might have some formal papers that would do better than what you're able to present in a 20 minute TED talk, but, but it falls real short of, of something we'd like to have to have a real dialogue about it. But yet then he'll be cited as an expert. Well, this guy has some evidence that, uh, yeah, we should be redistributing uh, big time. Uh, that'll for sure make us all happier, which is really when you stand back and think about it, ridiculous, but all right. Well, that is it here. Uh, this has been a production on behalf of Ottawa University here at the Gortney Institute. Appreciate you all listening and make sure you tell your friends and share this uh, podcast with others. Uh, we're tweeting on Twitter at 123PovertySucks uh, and uh, we have a Facebook page and our Gortney Institute page here. If you end up uh, wanting to support us. We'd love uh, support for our continued efforts at the Gortney Institute to investigate freedom and justice and human flourishing. This is the Faith and Economics podcast. Be fruitful, multiply. Thanks.